Welcome back, listeners, to this week's episode of If I Only Knew. Today, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Fred. Okay, Fred. Hello, listeners. Thanks very much for being with me here today, Fred. Today, I'm going to be picking your brains um, a little bit, I think. I want to talk a little bit about something that I've experienced plenty of, which is standardized education. Uh, now, I've spent a long time in the education system at the moment, um, and I have a lot of thoughts about you know the way that we structure the assessments um, that we ask people to complete. Um, and now, Fred, you're an employer of pretty much graduates fresh out of uni, right? Like they're yeah. basically first job, kind of full time, that kind of thing. Is yeah, that lots right? Lots of them, absolutely. Mm. And see, so I'm interested in the in your experience hiring people like myself um, because I'm coming to the end of my degree and I've been working on a bit of an annoying assessment. And it's been annoying not because the task itself is hard, but because puzzling out the instructions they have requested of us is like taking half of my effort and I've been reflecting on this because this isn't fun I'm not enjoying producing uh, work to the letter of the instructions I've given me and I also feel like it's reflective of a, of a skill that I have. Now, usually having a skill would be a fantastic thing, right? But I actually reckon this might be one of the most inane skills that I've developed over my educational experience. And that is the ability to simply uh, write to instructions. It's to be able to peer beyond the veil of the instructions given to me and assess the intent of my marker in an ability to maximize my standardized grade at the end of my assessment, to make sure I tick all eight expectations they might have of me, say. Um, now, I'm not sure this is actually that valuable uh, because I'm not entirely certain that once I finish school, I'll have many situations in which I will need to assess a few pages worth of instructions to, uh, to maximize what percentage I can get on an essay I'm going to write, for example. Um, now, obviously, standardized testing and the problem of tests is, is pretty well understood. These things cause anxiety. They're very hard for, for a lot of young people to, to sit exams and that kind of stuff. And we'll talk a bit about that. But I think I'm most intrigued about the way we've structured education system to get people to learn a skill uh, based on the incentives of grades that maybe isn't going to be super useful for them after all. Now, it's important to answer the question given to you right but perhaps the the uh level of of challenge that it can sometimes take to answer that question isn't so useful so fred i want to ask you do you reckon that this this sense of um maybe a level of anxiety about the instructions that you're given before you begin a task or needing a, a real level of clarity perhaps about what's expected of you is something you've observed in graduates or is this kind of story that i'm telling about a test that i've been given uh where i'm just spending so much time trying to work out what it looks like is that something that, that you've kind of got any thoughts on yeah, I do, Matt, and, and I have thoughts on it as a parent. I also have thoughts on it as an employer. Mm. Um, what I see at the moment with the education of my kids is two things. One, um, a method of answering to maximise marks where the method is more important than the content. Absolutely. And the second issue is this concept of time-based um you know, in, in New South Wales, we have a thing called NAPLAN, which right. is a, a, a where do you sit on a spectrum test? And it's not about your, your ability to do the problem. It's your ability to do as many problems as possible in a certain period of time. And I see anxiety in smaller children, particularly my daughter, around these time-based tests. And the way they get them past that anxiety is just to make them do thousands and thousands and thousands of repetition. And that's no different to when I went to school. 
The issue was what changed for me when I went to university was that there was less reliance on a formula to answer and more about what was going on between your ears. And I always thought that was the difference between university and school. So we would get these very open-ended questions, particularly in psychology. Um, and look, there's a general set of rules about how you would go about answering an essay question, for example you know, how you would plan it, you know, the beginning, the middle and the end, how you would do an abstract. But what they didn't tell you is here are the eight key points to answer in order to get maximum marks. They were more interested in what you researched and had to say. How that manifests in real life as an employer is really interesting because we have a whole cohort, a cohort of graduates that are tortured by a perfect report. So they want to know how to write a perfect report, but they're living in the real world. Yeah. This is the biggest skill that graduates struggle with when they start working because the perfect report may not look like a university assignment. And the example I give is a fairly simple one. When I was an intern psychologist, I worked in a place where they wanted me to do a thousand intake assessments before they would let me see group clients or individual clients. And then the intake had a very specific set of questions to it and I would write up a summary for the nurses. One day I was sitting with the nursing unit manager in the unit itself, and she said, I believe you're doing the intakes now. And I said, yep. She said, do you think they're any good? I said, I think my intakes are fantastic. And I said, what do you think? And she said, they're atrocious. Right. And I had the most humbling moment of my early career then. I said, what do you mean? They're great, they're full of detail, they're full of color. And she said, I want you to spend a couple of hours with me to answer that question. So she teed it up with my boss and I shadowed the nursing unit manager. And in those couple of hours, I saw her bring new people into the facility, um, search their bags, do medication checks, issue medication, allocate a bed, um, do a, you know, uh, essentially dress a wound, do a 35 unit um, uh, group of patients, entire lunchtime medications, direct people to where they needed to be, do shift handover. And at the end of it, she said, now do you know why your intakes are atrocious? I said, because they're too long. Hmm. And she said, yeah, you're giving me three pages, but what did I have time to look at for each new person coming into the unit? I said, about five minutes. So I learned to write that same amount of detail in three paragraphs because that's how long they had to read it. And it was my first aha moment between academic excellence and real world work, right? I was writing these fantastic reports that a lecturer would mark, probably give them a higher distinction. Hmm. And the end user was saying, these are absolutely useless to me altogether. And that's the difference between what I consider to be the academic pressures that we see and people that excel in the academic space, but don't have what I would call the real life scar tissue to then come on board and do the job. Hmm. Hmm. So the kind of learning changes when you leave university and that shift between the academic paradigm and, you know, the value for money work that you do when you leave uni is a really big leap for a lot of people. And uni and school, in fact, don't prepare people for that leap. Mm -hmm. I never had a lecturer that said, you'll have to write a really good report that someone can read in five minutes. And by the way, they're not a psychologist. So all of the terminology we teach you here is redundant 
if you put it in a report for a nurse or someone else. Mm -hmm. I really like that idea. It's quite interesting because we've got quite stringent uh, like word limits in our assessments and stuff. And, and you know, I, I grate against them so much because they're so frustrating, but they exist for a reason. And uh, and I don't, I don't mind that at all. I think my writing has gotten better having to be a bit more concise for sure. Um, but the, the, you started with the idea of being haunted by the perfect report. And I really like that as a, as a, as a way to frame the problem that I think I'm dealing with here because I think um, there's a couple elements there. The first is the idea or the belief that the perfect report exists. And you see yeah. this a lot in uni and, and I think um, it's something I had to come to terms with. But the simple fact is you're not going to write the perfect assessment. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Anything with the written word doesn't have a, a simple and perfect example of it. Um, and I think that's really worth keeping in mind for people doing assessments. But I think the real problem I have with this notion of like you can't do it perfectly or, or, or whatnot is that it feels like the incentive structure that we're, where your students sit within seems to ask that we do create that perfect yeah. report. And I think this is the tension that I've, I've found very frustrating is that we seem to exist within a system that um, asks us to get 90%, 85%, 80%, that seems to be the, the um, point of standardized assessments is to perform as well as you can. And that's something that I'm, you know, take to heart is uh, when I'm doing something, I want to do it as well as I can, which means I want to perform very highly. And yet we know that these uh, outcomes are not um, really achievable. So I think the, the, the kind of consequence of that or what I've ended up taking away from it is that where do you get those extra marks where do you get that extra bit maybe you write like an 80 percent or an 85 percent report or an 85 percent assessment um but where's the extra stuff and what i've found at least for my work is it's often in being attentive to what your marker is looking for and being attentive right. to what what the expectations of this assessment might be what's being talked about most in class what is your marker most interested in as a topic and writing about that um and i think that this is an interesting aspect of these assessments because um, it seems like a lot of effort isn't put then on creating good work. It's put then on being aware of what might increase my marks by a few percent. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, the problem with, with this system, I think, or this discussion is that you very accurately identified that there's a different um, incentive structure in the professional world. There's different expectations and different needs and different requirements. Maybe it's shorter, punchier, um, more universally readable. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, for the university system and for education in general to achieve that. Um, but I also think that there's probably more recognition of the um, imperfect nature of the world in the professional world, in that the perfect report is, or, or the better report, isn't the one where each sentence is meticulously crafted to be as maximally good as it can be because nobody is spending that time investigating each sentence and, and grading it. If, it. if it gives me the information I need, if it reaches above my threshold to inform me about the things I need to know, then it's a good report. Whereas I feel like because we have such granular, maybe percentage-based assessments or whatever, it's uh, it suddenly becomes like, oh, I could have done just that little 3% better to cross that threshold to do this much more improvement or whatever. And I think that that's an interesting feature of, um, of the professional world is it seems like it's if you achieve your requirements, if, if it does what it needs to do, then that's broadly more uh, more reliable and, and more positive. Um, what, what do you the reckon? Concept, 
Yeah, it's the concept of fit for purpose, Matt. Mm. Universities don't work on fit for purpose. Mm. So I have never seen anybody in a university give maximum marks for the least detailed, shortest report. Right. Or shortest assignment. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, that the where the universities let students down is that hubris behind we're academics and you must... Um, meet a certain academic standard. And as you pointed out, there's an academic bias in every report because of the person that's actually reading and reviewing the report. Mm. In the real world, a report or written work is fit for purpose. Mm. I have, I, I give another story. I have a colleague whose first email to a new CEO um, was something they agonised over. And they literally agonised over that, uh, that first email to their new CEO for a day when they sent it they got a reply that said this email is too long right okay because their audience was task rich time poor mm. and wanted to cut to the chase i often write content that goes to gps uh, a normal gp consultation is seven to 14 minutes mm. so if i'm putting written content to a gp i might make it quite a long detailed uh uh, form, but they won't read it. Mm -hmm. I've learned that you're better to have a dear doctor, can you please provide X patient with the following for the following reason? Mm. And that will get a result. So, from a fit for purpose perspective, uh, a two sentence letter might be pound for pound, dollar for dollar, far more vital, mm. far more useful and far more outcome provoking than a three page letter that won't be read. Mm -hmm. And again, it's that kind of self-importance. I'm not saying universities aren't right to teach people to write 10,000 word reports because in life you will get there. There are also different university degrees. So for example, if you're studying finance or accounting, often you're not doing an assignment that's based on the written word. It may be based on um, the interpretation and formulation around numbers against a key standard like the tax code. Mm -hmm. In that scenario, what you're writing is a justification for your decisions. And you might be referencing case law, you know, the tax code itself, etc. And there's probably a perfect assignment in that. Mm. Um, although even the tax code has a certain degree of grey. In the computer sciences, if they ask you to write code to produce a certain outcome, there's probably right ways and then wrong ways, but it's still fit for purpose. Mm. In accounting, you've got to get the best possible tax treatment for your client. Mm. In computing, you've got to get the least efficient, lowest energy use and lowest CPU use out of your program that gets your result. So certain technical degrees look at the idea of minimizing effort to maximize a result mm. or the minimum effort required whereas the humanities have a tendency to lean into this idea of not only do a big document but do it in a certain way and find my certain interest to get a good mark mm. Mm. now i have to say to all the graduates that come out the real world is pass fail it's not high distinction yeah. distinction credit yeah. okay i really like this idea of fit for purpose because i think it speaks to the the thing that I find most frustrating about the this system, which is I don't feel like the incentives line up with the actual um, goal of the education. Because yeah. I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like in my mind, if you if you've done well enough, if you've passed that threshold, if you've passed, then you've done a 
sufficient good job and like obviously you can do a better job i suppose that's the idea but it seems professionally most people aren't that concerned about whether you write a great email or a good email right um and i also think that the issue that as students that we face is that sometimes we might want to write assessments that are fit for purpose or, or our sense of like what is the point of this what am i getting out of this um might be very clear but the uh, assessment criteria itself might not allow you to explore that side of things. And I think I want to I wanna maybe dive a little bit into the way this is a cumulative process throughout yep. my experience of education from like primary school, because I think we've talked a lot about unis. And I think it's very appropriate. I've been very frustrated by this assessment that I've written. Um, but this is a, a, a skill or a process that I think is, I've been exposed to from the very start. And I do a lot of tutoring with middle school senior school students um, and what I'm pretty much brought in by families to do is to improve grade percentages right um, and so I will talk a lot to these students about how do you put what you know and what you've learnt into the system of the worksheet in front of you to actually get more grades um, and well I'll do whole sessions that are just like um, little cheats to get better grades. How do you use this word instead of that word? How do you use this sentence to that sentence? And I think this is really interesting and, and a bit of a problem because um, I think we, we know that assessments, uh, standardized tests, exams, time conditions are, are, are really tough and, and difficult for students. But I also think what they do is they, they prompt people to learn to a different standard. And so fit for purpose is a standard we want, right? Because that's that's the goal, right? You want to produce something that you can work with. Um, but we're actually teaching students to uh, work towards fit for high performance or whatever that might look like. Um, and, and I feel like this is a very, a very interesting or difficult situation because at the end of a podcast like this, I'd love to be able to say, well, what do we do about it? But I think yeah. I do appreciate that um, standardization is something of a proxy for fit for purpose, right? And I'm not sure how you do it much better, um, but I know that even from very young ages, the the incentives in the system that we are taught within exist to reward people who can perform best within that system and punish people who perform the worst in this system. And I think that um, the takeaway that I kind of have for, for younger kids especially is that... The work you do is what matters most. It's that learning that's important. Um, and you hear this a lot from adults. And I think I want to put this to you, Fred, because I think this is a fascinating idea. Because one way out of this is to suggest, don't focus on the final grade, aim to create the best work you can, right? And I think that's like a, a pretty sensible idea that's really attractive to me. Like I want that to be the case, right? Um, but then you look at the way our world is structured and you see that, grades and benchmarks and percentages and performances um, in the education system have a huge impact on people's access to scholarships, to, to courses in the future, to um, acceptance in certain areas of, of work based on how competitive they are. And so it seems to me that the disjoint between people know this system doesn't work such that we're told to make good work instead of high scoring work. And yet, if we don't make that high scoring work, there are consequences to us. And is that like, I, I know you've got younger kids and, and, and whatnot. Is that something that um, you've maybe seen as, as something you've had to tell your kids or, or is there a way that you've navigated 100%. that? I'll, I'll flip the script on this a little bit. One of the smartest people I know did very poorly at school. Mm, mm. 
Uh, and it was only when they got into the workforce and started doing very technical work that they realised that if you take away the arbitrary assessment and the assessment is real-world outcomes, some people learn very quickly. Mm. One of the things I'd say to anybody in this environment is it's a cost-benefit analysis, and that's hard to say to kids. Mm. Very easy when you're my age reflecting backwards. Right. I, I think ultimately, and the way that academics are structured now throughout high school, particularly the end of high school, is the idea that um, there is no one way to pass. So you've got to do an accumulation of work. And in a lot of ways, it's fairer. But I've always believed, like anything in life, you can take your end point and work backwards. So if you wanted to do psychology, Matt, you would know that at certain universities, you might need 10 points higher than other universities. Mm -hmm. But if the goal is to be a good psychologist, it probably doesn't matter where you study and it doesn't matter what you did in high school as long as you get in. Mm -hmm. And once you're in, it doesn't really matter what your grade point average is as long as you've done the learning. Because when you actually start your real training for my profession, it's out in the field. The, the book work is the foundation. It's very important. But there are some people I know that will work towards the minimum they need to get what they have to achieve, where there is others that will want to get the maximum because they want the scholarships, they want the best university, they want the best grades, and that's okay too. Where it's a trap that I think young people need to be mindful of is that when you remove the academic standard and you step into the real world, there is no gray area or distinction when you're not meeting an expectation because you're overcapitalizing on the task. Hmm. And some of the smartest uh, best GPAs I've seen coming into the world of work can fail because there are no rules. The rules change. There are deadlines and there are tasks and there are word limits, but you don't get any extra credit for going the extra mile. Mm. It is simply fit for purpose. And the hardest bit in the work that we do, Matt, is you might write a report and I might write a report. They might look completely different, but they're both good reports. Yeah. So there is no one objective standard. And all I'd say to people about their schooling and these academic standards are they're a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been in the workforce now for 30 years, Matt. Nobody's ever asked me about my grades. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting it's not important. And I think some people learn to excel academically. But if you wanted me to boil it down to what are little kids need to know, what are, you know, adolescents need to know, what are young adults need to know, it's simply this. Um, it's about the practical skills that the academic endeavour is designed to teach you. So we learn about cash handling when we're about five or six, okay? That's as practical and important. The, the, the time on a, an analogue watch mm. is as practical and important. Uh, driving a manual car is as practical and important as writing the perfect dissertation on the politics of gender mm. to how your lecturer wants to read it. Mm. And all I'd say to people is some of the most interesting and successful people I've worked with in my working life either 
didn't succeed at university or came to it later in life, mm-hmm. I had a second career before I, I started psychology. And there's a lot of credit given from smart people to real life experience. Mm-hmm. So if I had to pick between somebody that's done five years as a carpenter and went back and studied psychology or new grad out of Sydney uni with perfect marks, the carpenter's going to get the first run normally because they've got scar tissue. They lived in the real world. They've paid their bills. They've built a business, you know, those sorts of things. So there are ways to compensate if you're not the best student. And there's ways to level the playing field if you were the best student but not a great employee. Mm-hmm. I think I really like the idea that the practical things that school is meant to teach is like should be the takeaway. And, and I try to kind of sit with that because I definitely think my writing has improved since going to uni and I think I've gotten better at a, at a bunch of different things, at research, at, at structuring ideas, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think what's irked me more and more as I've gotten older and older and I think um, have accepted within the schooling system is that I can tell I have learnt quite, uh, through quite some effort a skill that is not that useful and that is the ability to work within the system and I think that's interesting and I think that it contrasts the uh, very clever person who didn't do so well in school that you know Fred because I think in some ways you could you could depict my situation as the person who did very well in school but learnt something that really wasn't that useful for, for quite a lot of effort. And I think that's really interesting. I think, um, look, what, what can we do about this is really tough. I think this is a, a conversation that a lot of a lot of parents were very aware of that this stuff's not pleasant or easy. I reckon there's a real value in being a little bit sensitive to the fact that this stuff does matter to young people and to students. And obviously you've been very, very clear about that, Fred. But I think it's it's kind of even even making explicit the idea that a student can know that doing good work is what matters, but they can also know that if they don't get graded well, that there are consequences. And I reckon being an adult sometimes, having passed through the um, uncertainty of being graded and having passed through the uncertainty of the standardised system, it can be very, very obvious that things get better and that not everything rides on these grades and all that kind of thing. Um, but I reckon being in the system, it can be particularly hard to uh, to feel that, to feel that, well, you know, there's a world outside of academia or outside of the education system where this stuff um, actually isn't so important and where other skills are more useful. And so I think being kind of sensitive to that in, in conversations yeah. with young people can be quite uh, valuable. My, my final thought on this is is a really simple one. Um, take it seriously because you're meant to learn discipline in school and Mm. that's the one thing that we haven't spoken about is all these test-taking techniques, all the study, all the academic endeavour are a form of discipline that help you think Mm. and that challenge your way of thinking and I quite like that. But if academics aren't your thing, then find ways to show people that you excel in different ways. Mm. Whether it be sport or pamphlet delivery, whether it be um, volunteering or working at McDonald's as soon as you can, there are lots of different ways to demonstrate to people your safety as a future employee. Mm -hmm. The one thing I would say is that seldom do, do grades equate to safety for a new hire. Mm, That's a really interesting one. But there are a lot of places in this world and a lot of professions that would say your grades are used to differentiate the five people that get the job versus the 500 that apply. Mm, mm, Yeah. 
So they're not for nothing, they do matter. And that's the same as getting into university or getting into a selective school or getting into a scholarship. So grades and that discipline, that objective discipline have a place. Mm. All I'd say is I've seen as many people succeed because of practical real life skills as academic achievement. Mm. Mm. And in that regard, I guess um, as an employer, I would say somebody that's had to work their way through school and uni mm. is probably a safer bet than mm. someone that's got the best grades but never worked a day in the last six years to get those mm. grades. Thanks for that insight, Fred. I think that's really interesting uh, from, from the other side, from the, from the employer side. I appreciate it. All right, Matt. Again, a great episode and one to really think about. And I certainly understand where you're coming from with that. Um, if you've liked this episode or you want to hear different topics, please drop us a line, like, and subscribe. A lot of people have said to me recently that they're not getting updates on our new podcast, Matt. And there's a reason for that. They've got to go back in and as they do their updates on their Apple phone or their <laughs> Android device, they've got to resubscribe. Yeah. So do me the favor, resubscribe, like, leave your reviews, tell us what you want to hear about. Matt and I love doing this podcast and part of the reason for it is the feedback we get from you. So don't miss out. Uh, some of our best work is yet to come, I don't doubt. As Matt starts to endeavor in different aspects of life, we've got really cool journeys coming up that we get to uh, get to see from Matt's perspective. And look, you know, while I'm still breathing, more is going right than going wrong. <laughs> so I'm sure I'll add some value too. Until next time, listeners, thank you for listening to If I Only Knew. Thanks very much. See you guys. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production with special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is this podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.